Luke chapter 2, verse number 1. Once again, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one unto his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of, uh, out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto a city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Mm. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were... In the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, watching over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto, unto you is born this day in the city of David a, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. It came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd touch us with your word today, uh, correcting misconceptions, strengthening those things which we know to be true. May the Savior be glorified in this place today. The Savior be glorified in this place today. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Everyone here knows that this is the day that Christianity celebrates the birth of Christ. Sadly, from that point on, the birth of Christ, many of the celebrations of the day fall apart. By that I mean much of the world celebrates Christmas while rejecting Jesus. Christmas is a big thing in Japan from what I understand. They don't worship Christ in Japan. And much of secular Christianity looks at the birth of Jesus while at the same time rejecting the Son of God. So we have Jesus but not the Son of God. And then nominal Christianity fills their celebrations with superstitions and traditions and, in some cases, absolute, utter paganism. We hear from various quarters that Christianity, excuse me, Christmas is all about love. We hear that it's all about family. We hear that it's all about giving, depending on who happens to be speaking to you. 
And then there are a lot of people who insist, no, Christmas is all about making our yearly sales quotas before uh, the January comes along. And in the process, the incarnation of the Son of God falls into the septic system filled with dozens of other superstitious traditions. Various world religions and pseudo-religions are filled with stories similar to that of the incarnation of Christ. Are you aware of that? And the more the birth of Christ is secularized and fantasized, the less impact he has on a lost world that's already caught up in all of its own problems. What makes the birth of Christ different from what the Greeks said about Perseus, the son of Zeus, and the virgin, virgin named Dania, Dania. Many Romans were convinced that Jupiter was the son of Saturn, and he came down to earth in a shower of gold. The Macedonians eventually fabulized Alexander, saying that he was the son of a serpent. And in fact, some of the Romans believed that the emperor in Jesus' day, that man Augustus, was uh, born in the same sort of way. Some Hindu traditions say that Krishna was the son of a virgin uh, named Daivavuki or something like that. And the Roman Catholics while talking about the miraculous conception of Jesus, also say that Jesus' mother was miraculously conceived. These and a dozen others, dozens of other fanciful fables, when mixed with the actual biblical truths about the birth of Christ, dilute the opportunity that we have to share with these people Christ. The family was talking about, last night, talking about the way some Christian parents teach their children that there's a, this fellow named Santa Claus who brings presents every December 25th. And then when the child gets to be 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, or older than that, they find out there is no Santa Claus. They question what those parents said about the Lord Jesus. There's a parallel here. There's a parallel here. As Christians of a different variety, shall I say, as Bible-believing Christians, you and I are obligated to take our doctrines and our faith out of the Word of God. Not out of Christmas carols, even though some of them are relatively close, and certainly not out of the Christmas cards that we receive. As I said on Wednesday, we must understand the words of the Bible as literal as possible. Yes, there are a lot of missing details which we would love to have, but that does not give us the right to insert our opinions in those uh, undeclared areas in regard to the birth of our Lord Jesus. Our theology must not be established on anything other than what we find in the pages of the Word of God. One of the major differences between the birth of Christ and the superstitions of false world religions is 
is seen in the modesty and the simplicity of Christ's coming. The actual incarnation of the Son of God. For example, here's our theme. Why was Jesus born a stable boy and not as a king or as a triumphant world conqueror? Why was he first cradled in a manger and not in a gold-covered bassinet somewhere? Why were there animals present when there should have been a doctor or at least a midwife there to help this lady bring her child into the world? The answers, to me, are somewhat obvious. In the midst of all the ungodliness of the season, these obvious truths need to be reiterated. First, the Lord Jesus was born in a stable because he had to be born somewhere. <laughs> that sounds stupid. It's not. It's really a, an important statement. It was absolutely necessary that our Savior identify and become one with human sinners, the sinners he intended to save. He had to be our perfect substitute. He had to be one of us. As taught by the apostles, Christ could not meet our need if he had not appeared as one of us. If he had appeared as an angel out of nowhere, it wouldn't have been good. It wouldn't have been proper. It wouldn't have worked. He had to become one of us, a man, yet without sin, he had to become a man. He had to identify with us. It was absolutely essential that he be born somewhere. I realize we often say things, some say things like, well, uh, it's by the grace of God that I'm still here. That car accident could have taken my life. That bout with the flu could have ended me uh, right there. But here, by the grace of God, I stand before you. It's only by the will of God that we live and move and have our being. The fact of the matter is, we ought to be 10,000 times more thankful than we are that we are still here today. If we only knew what uh, could have happened to us and did not happen because of the grace of God. Every breath we take, every bite we eat, every antibody in our blood is there because of God's mercy toward us. We don't deserve to be alive. We're a bunch of wretches. We're a bunch of sinners. You did not need to be born, in fact, even to begin your life. It's by the grace of God that we come into this world. But Jesus incarnation was different it was absolutely essential you and I are not essential Christ Jesus is perhaps your parents deliberately decided to bring you into the world perhaps you were a delightful accident when your parents were hoping to uh, get a little older and a little more financially established but there you are there are thousands of children born every year who are not wanted, who are hated 
even before their birth. And there are thousands of children who are murdered every year, preventing their births. You did not have to be born, but you were. The Lord has a purpose for you. You were born. And some of you have been born again by the grace of God. Praise the Lord for that. But as I have said, there was no choice. Jesus Christ had to be born, and he had to be born somewhere. In the councils of eternity, when God decided to save people, there was no choice but to have the Son of God become incarnate through the virgin birth. When the decision was made to redeem the Lord's fallen creation, there was no choice but that the second person of the Trinity take upon himself human flesh. That was because the only way salvation could be accomplished was through that perfect substitution to which I've already referred. He had to be born of a human mother. He had to be born in order to be our Savior. And again, he had to be born somewhere. It's so sad to see so many people put the cart before the horse. Or maybe I should say put the cradle before the cross. Satan has got us as a world so befuddled that we're constantly confusing good things with better things. The God of this world has been working very diligently to corrupt the mindset of people when it comes to the birth of Christ. For example, some people confuse standing in awe before the manger above bowing in repentance before the Holy God. They confuse loving God with trusting Christ as their Redeemer. To them, concocting a good amount of affection for this special baby is all that's really necessary. Some people, being caught in sin, confuse their embarrassment with repentance. It's the same sort of thing. Some people equate loving their families and buying gifts for others and supporting worthy charities as worshiping Christ. They're not. Why is it that so many picture the birth of Christ as the completion of redemption? Why is it that so many think that the baby in the manger is the Savior of the world? That helpless infant cuddled to his mother's breast was not Savior any more than the man who was born on February 12th, 1809, outside of Hoganville, Kentucky, was the 16th president of the United States. He was just a baby. Jesus' birth was but one small step, shall we say, toward the deliverance of the sinner. Methinks the world celebrates the birth a bit too much. Why was Jesus born in a stable? Because of the cruelty and sinfulness of the world. 
It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Was that taxation made for the establishment of hospitals throughout Israel? Or to uh, come up with a plan for clean water? Or was it for the education of the illiterate? That taxation was in order to satisfy the greed of the man who was emperor, pay the armies of that emperor so it could be a greater emperor throughout the world. As a result, a poor man and his expectant wife had to make an arduous and troublesome journey into Judah in order to be registered and taxed. Out of greed, Mary had to risk her life and the life of her baby to travel to Bethlehem. And that was why Jesus was born in those humble conditions. When Joseph and his exhausted wife arrived at their destination, they couldn't find proper accommodations. It is sometimes argued that it was not uncommon for people to stay in barns and stables and that sort of thing. I don't know if that's true or not. But the laws of chivalry and hospitality demand that consideration be made for this woman in her condition. You think? Were there no hearts touched by the fact that they had come so far? Was there no other woman in Bethlehem who had a, a troublesome delivery of her own child who wouldn't have taken Mary and Joseph and laid a mat down in her kitchen somewhere so they could be warm and sheltered? If you saw a pregnant woman squatting beside her car trying to lift a spare tire up onto that wheel, wouldn't, wouldn't you stop and try to help? If you had two coats and your neighbor had none, would you let him freeze? Perhaps, perhaps you would have offered help. But the world generally is not that kind. This is a wicked, uncaring place, despite all the Christian hype to the uh, contrary. Jesus Christ came into this unholy place to correct just some of the things that... Uh, I've referred to. These are reasons why he was born in that stable. And it was to show the extent to which God would go for us. Paul once wrote, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no doubt about the fact that when our Savior died, there could be no greater demonstration of the proof of God's love for us. But in this kind of incarnation, in the incarnation, in this situation, just, just shines a little tiny light out there toward the end of his life. This is how much I care about you. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his own son, sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, for the purpose of redeeming us who are under the law. That we might be made the sons of God. Changing gears just a little bit. Let me ask. Out of all of the creatures of the animal kingdom. Which is the most vile and 
reprehensible, despicable that you can imagine? Is it the predator, the lion, the tiger? It, maybe it's the scavenger, the vulture, the hyena. That the, is that the worst of the worst? Is it the, the, the rat? Maybe you picture a slithery, disgusting, dangerous reptile. Or maybe it's the cockroach that just really disturbs you, turns your stomach, the dung beetle. It would certainly be inappropriate to ask, because the Lord would not answer this question, I don't think. But uh, what would be the most despicable animal in the sight of the Lord? He'd probably point at you and me, but that's not an animal. As you imagine the very worst creature in your little world, try to step back and imagine that before you came and became what you are now, you were that very despicable thing that you're imagining. Let's say that before you grew up and went to school, you were a slug. You've seen those slugs, three or four inches long, just a blob of something that moves. What if you were that before you became this, who you are? In order to become the butterfly that you are in Christ, you were a really ugly caterpillar. Would you be willing to become a cockroach in order to become something better later? Would you be willing to become a, a slug so that you could help other slugs in their slugginess? Please understand that when Jesus became man, he became something filthy and disgusting in the sight of Almighty God. A sinner. Don't, don't minimize the word sinner. The relationship between you and a slug does not depict the difference between God and the sinner. Granted, Christ did not become a sinner, but He wore the sinner's flesh he was tempted like a sinner. He died like a sinner. He identified with the sinner. Jesus was born in a stable. Were there any rats in that stable? Did they keep food there? Were there any cockroaches there? Any bugs? Any slugs? That is the extent to which Christ went in order to provide us with a Redeemer. There's a story about a little boy whose father went off to war and did not return. As the little boy grew, all he knew of his father was the picture that his mother had of dad. Several times as he was growing up, he said, I wish that my father would, could step out of that picture and become my father again. There in that humble maternity ward, God stepped out of the Old Testament picture frame and became God in our midst. Our Savior in our midst. Jesus was given the Old Testament name Emmanuel, 
Because he is, he was God with us. He's also Jesus, another name, because it means Jehovah the Savior. God said to us on the day of Christ's birth, this is how much I love you. This is the extent to which I will go to begin the journey toward your redemption, you unworthy sinner. Why was Jesus born in a stable? Perhaps to illustrate how easy it is to approach him. Again, I stress that the baby in that manger was not, at the time, our Savior. He became our Savior when he hung on the cross and when the blood poured out of his body as an offering for our sins. But the one who was born that day, in whatever the circumstances were, was the same one who eventually went willingly to the cross. There are millions of Christmas cards which depict various aspects of the birth of the Lord. On the internet, I've seen dozens of modern artist renditions of the events around that birth. Some of them are pretty interesting, thought-provoking. One I saw the other day was a group of really ragged-looking shepherds looking for the baby. They were dirty. They were disheveled. Their clothes were not great. They looked kind of like homeless people. But they had an invitation to come and see the Savior. And so they just marched right in. There they were to see Mary and the baby. And then there were the animals. So many little children can picture the donkey there, and maybe a sheep or two, goats perhaps, cow. These animals were there surrounding the baby, even looking into the manger there. Where's our food? What's this, what's this thing doing in our eating trough? That sort of thing. When Judy brought our children, Craig and Jackie, into the world, there was a rule at the hospital in those old days that uh, uh, the only person other than mom and the baby in the room and medical personnel, the father could go in. Nobody else. They could see through a window perhaps, but that was, that was it. Basically, it was in order to protect the health of everyone. No friends, no in-laws, and certainly not the, uh, the puppy or the pet cat. Not allowed in the room. No dirty shepherds. Certainly no billy goats or mares could get into that room. But Jesus wasn't born in a hospital. He wasn't born in a plush uh, room in a fancy palace somewhere. His nursery wasn't even in a secret cave or grotto up in the mountains overlooking Bethlehem. He was in a place that was readily accessible to everybody. In fact, as the sun came up that morning, I'm sure there were farmers and uh, ranchers and others who came through there to pick up grain or take out animals. It was, uh, it was Grand Central Station for a little while. Everybody had access that day. I've read that there was some graffiti found on a wall in a certain eastern seminary. Far Eastern Seminary. It read, Jesus said, Whom do you say that I am? And then underneath it said, 
You are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And then under that it said, and Jesus said, what? <laughs> There's no theological confusion about the openness in which Christ came into this right. world. And the openness to Christ has not changed since then. You don't have to go through a cathedral to get to Christ Jesus. You don't even have to come through this building. If there's a sinner who has come to the end of himself, if there's a sinner who realizes and admits that he cannot hope to be as holy as the example Christ has left us, if there's any sinner who by the conviction of the Holy Spirit has reached the conclusion that he needs the righteousness and the salvation of Jesus Christ, then the arms of the Savior are open. Amen. Pretty simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become yes. the sons of God. Christmas is not the end, the culmination. It is not the highlight of biblical Christianity. It comes somewhere in the middle. The really important highlight is Christ's death on the cross. Yes. It doesn't matter whether or not You've come to the stable and met the boy who was there. What matters is, ha is, have you met the crucified Savior? Have you come to Him in humble repentance and faith? I think this day, it's interesting that December 25th falls on a Sunday. I think that Christmas is a means of dividing real Christians from the false ones. <coughs> As was suggested a few minutes ago, on a day like today, many of the genuine saints aren't here, and we have a new congregation of uh, part-timers just because of the day. This, this day separates the true from the false. What kind of Christian are you? Have you been born again? Do you have spiritual life? Or are you just watching Jesus' birth and enjoying that? Please stand.